0: gracious to me and at some point during the week something will happen in my life and then I recall oh my goodness that's exactly like the praise that somebody shared Uh, it's just a great reminder to me all week long so I just want to publicly say thank you for all of you just standing up and sharing your praises it encourages me every single week Welcome back to Women in the Word. Can you believe it? We're almost done with our fall semester. It doesn't seem possible that it is November and we're headed towards Thanksgiving and um, I had a text message this morning from someone that said, okay, I bought your Christmas present and I thought, oh my gosh, Christmas! don't tell me you're Christmas shopping. Who out there is Christmas shopping? Okay, I'm going to take a big, deep breath and try not to get uh, anxious here. I am not Christmas shopping yet. I finally thought, okay, maybe I'll buy a turkey. That's kind of as far. I'm, I'm moving on to Thanksgiving. But uh, anyway, I'm glad y'all are getting it done. We have four disciples left to talk about. Today we're going to talk about three of them. And a couple of weeks ago, someone gave me a little thing they had gotten off the Internet. It was called The Lesson, and it had the beatitudes listed jesus teaching the beatitudes blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are the merciful and then it had these one-liner responses that the disciples had to jesus teaching the beatitudes and i read through it and i had been going to share it with y'all but after i read it i thought you know what we can do our own one-liners after studying the disciples all these weeks that'll help us remember them we could all come up with one-liner so i kind of ask around and had people give me their one-liners. If we had Peter after he listened to Jesus teach the Beatitudes, I think his one-liner would be, can't you just hear Peter? He hears Jesus teach and then he stands up and says, Lord, I will never, ever forget what you just taught. Never, never. I will never forget. And if all these guys forget, I still am going to remember. I thought, yep, that's Peter. And I can see James and John after they've heard Jesus talk. Their one-liner would be something like, Okay, Lord, if any of these people forget what you've just taught them, well, we're just calling fire down from heaven. They're gone, just like that. That would be James and John's one-liner. Philip, the accountant, do you remember Philip and feeding the 5,000? If Philip had a one-liner after hearing Jesus teach, it would be something like, Lord, I checked out the crowd. I think 20% of them were listening, and they probably heard 5% of what you had to say. I'm not sure that would encourage Jesus, but that's probably. And then Matthew, the tax collector that we talked about last week, I can see Matthew's one-liner. He listens to all these blessed are the merciful, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. And Matthew, the tax collector, his one-liner is, wow, my tax collector buddies are in real trouble now. Amen. James the Less, the final one we talked about last week. His one-liner after listening to Jesus is, unknown. <laughs> if you were here last week, you know that um, that's what Deb told us she found in one of the commentaries when she looked up the characteristics of James the Less. It simply said, unknown. We have no idea. So today we're going to meet these three guys. And I think that is Simon the Zealot and Thaddeus in the center, and then on the right is our notorious Judas Iscariot. Now, Simon the Zealot and Thaddeus are almost as obscure as James the Less that we talked about last week. It doesn't say unknown under their personalities, but they are virtually silent in all of the Gospels, even though... We don't really have a lot of information about them. I think there are some great things we can learn from them this morning. So we're going to start with, man on the left, we're going to start with Simon the Zealot. I know if you did your homework, you know that all four lists of the apostles, the one that's in Matthew 10 and Mark 3, Luke 6, Act 1, gives Simon the distinction. It always mentions him as the Zealot. It never calls him, it never just says Simon, it never says anything else about him. Now, if you study Simon, if you look in the commentaries and the books on the disciples, 99% of them will say that this is because Simon was formerly part of the Jewish political sect called the Zealot. Now, I have to tell you that there were 1% of them that said, well, we're not really sure about that. Maybe it was just his personality. But I think I'm going to throw my hat in the ring and say that I think he probably was a member of the political sect, the Zealots, simply because it's listed in every account, it's capitalized as part of his name. So I think we're pretty, uh, probably on pretty solid ground if we believe that. Now, in Simon's day, in the nation of Israel, there were, around Jerusalem, there were four basic political parties among the Jews. The first one was the Pharisees. Now, as we've been reading through the Gospels and talking about the disciples, you have discovered, of course, that it's the Pharisees that are intent on giving Jesus such a hard time. They were the religious fundamentalists of the day. They believed in strict interpretation of the law. The next political party that we see in the scriptures are the Sadducees. And they were the religious liberals. They were ...down the scale from the Pharisees. The Sadducees were known as being rich. They were powerful. They were aristocratic. And interestingly enough, they denied the supernatural... ...which is one reason they had a hard time with Jesus. Can you imagine if you based your um, understanding... ...that supernatural didn't exist... ...and all of a sudden Jesus raises someone from the dead? That would be pretty hard to uh, live with, I think. They definitely had a hard time with Jesus and they were the ones that were in charge, the political group that was in charge of the temple. Now, the Essenes, that are not mentioned in Scripture, but if you read much about Jewish history and and read about the background of the nation of Israel, you'll come across the Essenes. They were the ascetics and the celibates who lived in the desert, and they devoted their lives to the study of the law. And finally, you come to the fourth group, which was the Zealots. Now, the Zealots... "...were more politically minded than any of the other groups, and they were definitely extremists in every sense of the word. Like the Pharisees, they interpreted the law literally, but unlike the Pharisees who were willing to compromise with the Romans over political reasons, the Zealots were militant. They were violent outlaws who believed that only God himself had the right to rule over the nation of Israel." As a result of that, the zealots hated the Roman rule and the Roman occupation that was in Jerusalem. And the zealots believed that they were doing God's work when they assassinated the Roman soldiers, when they assassinated political leaders. And actually, they believed it was God's work when they assassinated anyone who opposed them politically, including their own countrymen. They were not above assassinating their Jewish uh, friends and neighbors if they stood in the way of the political cause of the Zealots. The Zealots were hoping for a Messiah who would lead them in a revolt, who would lead them in overthrowing the Romans and restore the kingdom completely to Israel once for all. John MacArthur, who wrote a book on the disciples, writes in his book, Uh, That the spirit of the zealot movement was an insane and ultimately self-destructive fanaticism. Sounds familiar with some of the things we face in today's world, doesn't it? So that's Simon's background. That's who Simon the zealot was. That's what he had lived and experienced during his adult years. And that's who he was when he was called by Jesus to be one of the twelve. As a zealot, we can be convinced and fairly certain that he was definitely searching for the Messiah, just like Andrew and James and John and Peter when we looked at them a few weeks ago and they had been with John the Baptist and they were looking for the Messiah. But Simon's search for the Messiah really revolved around finding a political savior for the nation of Israel. He was looking for a fellow revolutionary, not a personal savior to die for his sins. And knowing that Simon most likely began his journey with Jesus with a political motive based in fanaticism, it's really interesting to think about what his relationships with the other 11 might have been. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who we're going to talk more about in a little while, Uh, more than likely shared their same political expectations of a messiah who was a revolutionary even though we don't have any information that judas iscariot was actually a zealot he had political hopes and dreams for the messiah probably both judas iscariot and simon the zealot originally followed christ for the same political reason and When Jesus in Mark 6 sent the disciples out two by two to minister, you know, he gives them the opportunity to heal and to drive out demons in Mark 6. We've talked about it before. More than likely, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot were part of that ministry team together. It was the two of them that went out. And I think that even though they were busy and involved in doing the work that Jesus had given them to do, I think they probably had a lot of time to dream together and to talk about what they wanted it to look like when Jesus finally revealed himself to the world as the radical Messiah that was going to take back Israel. Among the twelve, these two, Simon and Judas, were the political radicals, and the others, no doubt, had to realize that in some realm. As a Roman tax collector, Matthew, that Deb shared with us uh, last week, was at the very opposite end of the political spectrum from Simon the Zealot. At one point in his life as a zealot, Simon would probably have gladly killed Matthew. And as he and Matthew were transformed from political opponents to being brothers in Christ... It was truly a great testimony to the hope, the real hope, that the Messiah brought to the world rather than what Simon thought his heart was really searching for. When Jesus did not overthrow Rome, as Simon dream- dreamed about and talked about over and over again, but rather spent two and a half years talking about heading to Jerusalem to die, it's pretty surprising to think that Simon, with his fanatical, politically passionate background, did not become the betrayer of Jesus. He really had the background and the calling to be the one that got so mad, that so became so disillusioned and hardened his heart. But it was not Simon. Somewhere along the way, Simon the Zealot was transformed from a political radical, from a fanatic who hated everyone that did not share his views, he was transformed. He met the real Messiah and he discovered the truth of who needed a savior. Israel did not need to be saved from Rome nearly as much as Simon the Salat needed to be saved from his own dark heart. I found it very curious when I looked at this, and you may have in your homework too, if you thought much about simon being a radical political fanatic i found it very curious that jesus would choose a revolutionary like simon to be a part of a group that was going to spread peace and love through the rest of the world but the truth is that jesus was never fooled by simon he was never fooled by his outward fanaticism just as we talked about with james and john and with peter and matthew and with philip with jesus as our savior our strengths, our weaknesses, are always able to become our strengths. On your outline, when Jesus called Simon to be one of the twelve, what he saw was a man of great courage, a man of amazing passion, and a man with fierce loyalties. As Simon believed the truth and had his heart changed, He became a man whose fiery enthusiasm for the advancement of Israel was transformed into a fiery enthusiasm and a passion for the cause of Christ. Now, we don't have any biblical record of what happened to our zealot after the church began in the book of Acts, but church tradition says that Simon the zealot took the gospel north and preached in the British Isles. Perhaps he was the one that actually brought the faith that would become the Church of England. Here was a man who was once willing to kill and be killed for political agenda. But in the end, he discovered the most worthy cause to die for, the proclamation of the truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins. Now, the last name... On the list of faithful disciples, it's not the very last name on the list, as you know, but the last name on the list of faithful disciples is Labius Thaddeus, or Judas, son of James. Now, some church historians actually dubbed him Trinomius because he has three different names in the scriptures. If you have an old King James Version, now the revised King James Version, I don't believe says this, and the NIV doesn't say it, but the old King James Version uh, in Matthew 10 calls him Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. That's how he was originally listed. And in the list in Acts 1, which you discovered in your homework, he's called Judas, son of James. Now, Judas was probably the name that was actually given to him at birth by his family, and Labaius and Thaddeus were nicknames. But both Lebeius and Thaddeus have meanings which are going to give us some insight into his personality. They have meanings that suggest that he was probably the baby of the family. In fact, a lot of the commentators felt like Lebeius meant uh, mama's boy. Um, they feel like it showed that he had a very tender Childlike heart, or he would not have grown to be an adult man with those two nicknames. Now, along with these inferences that we are able to make about his personality from these names that he has, we have one brief conversation that he has with the Savior in John chapter 14. So, open your Bibles with me, real quickly, to John chapter 14. In John 14, we know that Jesus is already in Jerusalem. It's the Passover, and he is just hours from the cross. He's giving his final instructions here to the 11 faithful disciples. Judas has already uh, gotten up to go do his evil deed, and Jesus gathers the other 11 around him in the upper room, and as he teaches through these great instructions to the disciples in John 14, Thaddeus, for the only time recorded in all of Scripture, speaks out. John fourteen twenty two. And then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Our apostle with three names actually, just in these few words, reveals to us that he has a heart that is filled with humility. It's tender and it's humble. He's not challenging Jesus' words. We've looked, as Lynn looked at Peter the last few weeks, we discovered that every now and then when Jesus said something that Peter didn't agree with or didn't understand, Peter jumped up to challenge him. We also know that James and John always seemed bold and overconfident when they were speaking with our Lord, but not Thaddeus. He takes his one opportunity to speak out to Jesus, and his question reveals that he has a very tender heart. And his primary concern is that he already knows who Jesus is. His belief has changed him. But isn't Jesus going to share with the world who he really is? In his humility, he wants to understand why this group of 11 would get to see Christ and not the whole world. He's not thinking of himself, and certainly he's not a man with political ambitions. He was a man who had experienced the power of Christ in his life over the last two and a half years, and I think he thinks, I can't stand it if the world does not experience that also. It's interesting to think that Thaddeus, with his humility and his tender childlike heart, and Simon the Zealot were both called by Christ, One who comes in with a heart passionate and perhaps hardened enough to kill for political reasons, and one nicknamed for his tender, childlike spirit. The other thing that we can see here in Thaddeus's question to Jesus is that there's still some confusion or some cluelessness about what's going on. We all know as we study the disciples that up until the resurrection, up until the day of Pentecost, they knew who Jesus was and believed that he was the son of God. But they couldn't figure out his agenda and how the world was going to be changed if he wasn't going to have an earthly kingdom. And Thaddeus lets us know here that he's not understanding that either. Lord, aren't you going to have an earthly kingdom? Surely you're not going to stay here with just the 11 of us. Aren't you going to be coronated? Aren't you going to be on the throne so everyone could see On your outline, Thaddeus was a humble, tender-hearted disciple who wanted the world to know Jesus as he did. I love Jesus' answer to Thaddeus here because he gives him an answer that one day... Not in the too distant future. Thaddeus is going to truly understand. I would have loved to have been there when the light bulb came on and he finally figured out what Jesus was saying to him in verse 23. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus answers Thaddeus with an amazing truth. He is going to reveal himself to the people that Thaddeus wants him to. He's going to reveal himself to anyone who loves him. Thaddeus's tender heart wants Jesus to bring the kingdom to the whole world. And Jesus gives Thaddeus and all 11 disciples the great truth. The kingdom would indeed come to the world, but it's going to happen one heart at a time. Now, church tradition records that a few years after the Pentecost, Thaddeus took the gospel into Edessa, which is actually Turkey today, and there are numerous accounts in history of how our tender-hearted, evangelistic Thaddeus healed the king of Edessa from a fatal illness. The traditional apostolic symbol for the tender-hearted Thaddeus is a club because historians record ...that he was our tender-hearted guy... ...eventually clubbed to death for his faith. Simon the Zealot and Thaddeus were very different men... ...who came to a common calling. As far as we can tell, they did not share similar backgrounds... ...and they definitely did not have similar personalities... ...but what they did share was a belief... ...that led them to be faithful followers of Christ... ...from their calling... ...with Jesus until their eventual deaths as apostles. In the Gospel of John, John tells us that Jesus' teaching was so unusual and so hard for the Jews... ...that many of those who followed Jesus and called themselves his disciples left. But regardless of what we don't know about Simon the Zealot and Thaddeus... ...we do know that they never left him. They were faithful even during those times when they were clueless... ...and they didn't quite understand... John six sixty six 66 on your verse sheet says this. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you, Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter is answering for all the disciples here. And from Simon and Thaddeus, we can learn a great attribute of the faithful, and that is that the faithful endure. Both of these men were called and they were prayed over and they were appointed as apostles by Jesus himself to come follow me. Somewhere in their past, they had jobs and they had families and they had responsibilities that they left behind to follow Jesus Christ. Despite whatever hardship that brought, and you know there was some hardship in walking away from life as they knew it, despite whatever hardship that imposed, we can see that Simon the Zealot and Thaddeus endured. When many of the others fell away, as we see here in the Gospel of John, Simon and Thaddeus endured even though there was probably ridicule and much speculation along with that. Even though they were never part of the inner circle, we never see them on the Mount of Transfiguration. We never see them in those deep conversations with Jesus. Despite the fact that they weren't Peter the leader or John the disciple Jesus loved, they endured. When their vision of an earthly kingdom did not materialize, when they figured out we've had this wrong all this time, they endured. John says this about the faithful when he wrote the Revelation, Revelation 17:14. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and with him will be his called, his chosen, and faithful. When Jesus returns for his final victory, those whose faith has endured will be with him. And when you remember the faces of Simon the Zealot and Thaddeus, those faces, I want you to remember that they were faithful and they endured. Now we're going to take a giant leap to the opposite end of the spectrum here. We're going to go from these two men who were so faithful and whose faith allowed them to endure. We're going to jump to the faithless as we move on to the most notorious of the 12, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Judas' name appears last on every single list of the apostles except for the list in Acts 1 where, of course, he does not appear at all. And every time his name appears on one of those lists, the writer of um, the gospel included the note that he was the betrayer. An example of that is in Matthew 10, 4, where the end of the list says Simon the Zealot and Judas the Iscariot, who betrayed him. He's never listed without that. Now Judas's name is a form of Judah, which very ironically means Jehovah leads or God leads. Sadly, very sadly for those of us that are parents, his parents obviously had great hopes and dreams, and aspirations for their son to be led by God, and those hopes, and dreams, and aspirations never came to pass. Judas's surname, which is Iscariot, probably indicates that he was from a small town south of Jerusalem, and that would have made him the only apostle that was not a Galilean, We don't have any evidence in the scriptures that he was ever looked down upon by the other 11 because he was not a Galilean. Um, They don't shun him because he came from afar, but we can know that because he did not grow up with them, he had no family associations with them like James and John were brothers and Simon and Peter and Andrew were brothers because... He was the outsider of the group that may have contributed to their unfamiliarity with his family and his background and his reputation before becoming a disciple. And because of that, because they really didn't know anything about him because he was from so far away, that may have played into his ability to... Conceal his heart and his thoughts from them, and to be a hypocrite. It may have aided him in his ability to be the deceiver. In fact, they were so uh, gracious to him and and unsuspicious of him that when Jesus predicted that one of them would betray him, not one of the eleven pointed the finger at Judas. Matthew twenty six twenty, on your verse sheet says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, "'I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me.' They were very sad, and they began to say to him one after the other, "'Surely not I, Lord.'" Now this would have been a perfect opportunity for them to all stand up and say, "'It's him. We know he's been stealing money from the um, treasurer's purse. We know he's been lying to your face. We think he's gone to see the chief priest." But they did not have any suspicion of him at this point. They turned to themselves in surprise and examined their own hearts rather than pointing out anything about Judas that might have been suspicious. We don't have any record in the scriptures of how and when Jesus called Judas to follow him. But like the other disciples, he did the same thing. He left his family and his work to follow Jesus. And there was a point when he was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah who would rescue Israel from Roman rule. He also did not desert Jesus like we've read at John six sixty six, as we just talked about with Simon and Thaddeus. He did not desert Jesus at that point either. Like the other 11 disciples, he stayed and he continued to eat and continued to sleep and continued to travel with Jesus. He definitely gave his time, committed his time to Jesus, But what he didn't do was believe. As a young patriotic Jew who wanted the kingdom of Israel restored without a doubt, Judas could see in his travels with Jesus in two and a half years that Jesus had real powers. He had captivating powers that Judas had never seen any other man display. But just as obviously as he was definitely attracted to the power that was Jesus's, He was never attracted to Christ on a spiritual level. And sadly, this is on your outline also, Jesus was attracted by the power of Christ, but not by the person or the true message of Christ. Every indication that we have in the scriptures is that Judas followed Jesus out of a desire for power, out of a desire to have his own agenda advanced, out of a desire for selfish gain and greed. John writes this about Judas in John 12:4 through 6, on your verse sheet. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You know, there's some other verses that we could stop and take a look at Judas's character, but I think John pretty much sums it up right here in these just couple of simple sentences. Judas did not have a heart for anyone but himself. He did not care that the poor would be taken care of. That wasn't what he was thinking. He did not care that Mary... Uh, in her desire to worship, had come in to anoint Jesus. He didn't care what was going on with Mary. He did not care or even get that perhaps Mary was listening to the Spirit that he knew nothing about. He was a thief. He's definitely a hypocrite. And all he was really thinking about was, Dad gum and I missed the chance to get that money that we could have had if he'd gone into the money purse. If he had put that money in the money purse, then I could have had part of it. Judas was a man with a dark and hardened heart. In fact, there's a verse in Jeremiah that I always think about when I hear the news at night, and it could have been... Um, Jeremiah could have written it about Judas himself. Jeremiah 17:9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. All 12 of the disciples began their journey... Probably pretty much in the same spot, anticipating an earthly messianic kingdom for the nation of Israel. But 11 of them became so captivated by the person of Christ that it changed not only their expectations, but their ambitions and their hearts. They caught on, now it was slowly, but 11 of them caught on to the truth that their thoughts about the Messiah were too small and too selfish and too directed only at what their own ambitions were and they began to embrace the truths that Jesus was teaching them day in and day out and slowly 11 of them had their Christ overcame their ambitious natures and their hard hearts now the one important and significant exception to the group of the 12 was Judas as Judas traveled with Christ for two and a half years and listened to his messages over and over and over again, instead of being captivated and enthralled with what Jesus was saying, instead of embracing that this is new teaching, that this man with such great power is trying to get us to wrap our hearts around, he became more and more and more disillusioned with Christ's teaching and message. And as he did, he became more hard-hearted. He hid both his disillusionment and his hard heart from the others. And he did an interesting thing. He began to try and repay himself for the time he had spent with Jesus. And he began to do that by stealing from the money bag. He began to think, you know, I've had two and a half years here where I could have been working. I could have been um, advancing um, the kingdom of Israel the way it needs to be. And I've wasted my time. So I believe he felt like he was entirely justified when he took the money that was meant for ministry purposes. On your outline, Judas gave Jesus his time, but he never gave him his heart. Not in two and a half years. That's pretty astounding to me. Although the other disciples were deceived by Judas and his lack of belief, his complete and utter lack of belief in who Christ was, Jesus himself was never deceived. As early in his ministry as John chapter six, Jesus referred to Judas as a devil, John six seventy and seventy one on your verse sheet. Then Jesus replied, "Have I not chosen you the twelve yet one of you is a devil." He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. by the time Jesus and the apostles went to Jerusalem for the final week of Jesus's life. Judas' spiritual decline was almost complete. And there was at some point during those final few days as they're preparing for the Passover, and of course as Jesus is preparing for the cross, that his disillusionment with the message of Christ turns to personal hate for the person of Christ. And his selfish greed takes him straight to treachery. Matthew 26:14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins, and from then on Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. When I studied this during the summer, and again when I went through the questions that we did this morning in our small groups, I found Judas' final moments with Jesus to be pretty shocking to me. They were huge evidences of a depraved spirit. And they're contrasted always with Jesus's um, patient willingness to fulfill his own calling and to go to the cross. In John 13, in this final night that Judas has with Jesus, um, he allows Jesus to wash his feet and to serve him, to kneel at his feet. And all that time, he's got those 30 coins of silver jingling in his pocket. It kind of takes my breath away to think that he could actually do that. In Matthew 26, where we read earlier, Jesus reclines at the table, and he tells the 12, one of you is going to betray me. And with fiend innocence, I don't know why he didn't just keep his mouth shut, but he didn't. He spoke up and looked right at the Savior's face and said, Sure, I think he whines. Don't you think he whines? It has to be whining. Surely it's not me, Rabbi. I cannot believe that he can do that. And just hours later, with great arrogance, he's got legions of Roman soldiers, which I read were hundreds of soldiers, actually. They come to the garden to get Jesus, who's just actually there waiting for him. With great arrogance, he marches into that garden thinking, I've got the power on my side now. What do you think you're going to do about this? With great arrogance, he kisses him and calls him rabbi. In his final days, Judas has been transformed by his own faithlessness, by his own lack of belief in Christ, by his own hatred and greed. From an opportunistic Jewish patriot, to the most despicable man who ever lived, the one who betrayed God himself for a few silver coins. Unfortunately for Judas, his revenge on Jesus brought him no satisfaction. I don't think there was even a second when he thought, okay, I've won As soon as the deed was done, he discovered that the money, which had been so important to him before, actually did not matter at all. Matthew 27. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and hanged himself Unfortunately, in his remorse, Judas did not do the one thing which might have saved him from the hell he had chosen for himself. He did not repent. The scriptures tell us here that he was remorseful, that he felt guilty, and that he was sorry for the mess he got himself in. But sadly, he did not cry out to God to forgive him for what he had done. He did not ask For God's mercy to overcome the evil that had been brought to Jesus. And instead of fleeing into the arms of a merciful God, he simply took his own life. It was a feeble and an unsuccessful attempt to end his own pain and to silence his conscience. Now, I was really conflicted at how we should end talking about Judas because it gives me... um, Not a very uplifting feeling to have to talk about the man who betrayed our Lord and our Savior. And so I decided that um, what we should do is end on a note of learning some lessons. He was not a man to be emulated, but in his mistakes, in his depraved heart, there are some things that we can learn from Judas. From the faithless Judas, we can learn that the spiritual carelessness that we see in his life is certainly a breeding ground for hard hearts. It was overwhelming to me when I studied about Judas, the opportunity that he had and the privilege that he had. Wouldn't we all have loved to have Jesus in the flesh to walk with for two and a half years? And Judas is a tragic example of opportunity lost and privilege wasted. He was given the privilege of hearing Jesus' voice day in and day out, of looking him in the face day in and day out. He could have sought and received from the Lord any truth, any explanation he needed to dispel his confusion about what was really going to happen with the Messiah. But he didn't do that. He was spiritually careless with the opportunity that he was given, and he never recovered from that. Spiritual carelessness, which I believe is the wasting of the privileges and opportunities that God gives us to know him, allowed Judas to fall into great sin. And we all need to heed his lesson of spiritual carelessness very carefully because it can happen in our lives too. Even in a great church, even in a Bible study, we can become spiritually careless. We can put off those opportunities to walk and talk with Jesus. We can say, that'll wait till tomorrow. I'll know the Savior better tomorrow. If we fail to take advantage of those opportunities, we're going to find our hearts becoming bitter and becoming uh, more hardened. Don't put off getting intimately acquainted with God because of spiritual carelessness. The next thing that the faithless Judas teaches us is that it's entirely possible to be physically close to um, Christ and the people of Christ and the purposes of Christ and still be hardened to sin. So we should never fool ourselves that simply rubbing elbows with other Christians is going to do something to our hearts. It's not true. If we do not lay hold of jesus christ through faith alone we will end our lives like jesus an unsaved hardened sinner above all else ladies we must believe that jesus is exactly who he says he is john 14:6. jesus answered i am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me and John 11:40 40 says, Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Because he never believed, Judas never saw the glory of God, even when it stood next to him. And finally, the faithless Judas teaches us that the purposes of God cannot be thwarted. In Judas, we see the tension between divine sovereignty and human choice, Judas's role in our salvation was ordained before the foundation of the world. It was foretold in the Old Testament by the prophets and by the psalmists, but the choice to participate in that divine drama was Judas's alone. So how do we reconcile those two um, opposing thoughts, those two unreconcilable thoughts? John MacArthur said this. There is no need to reconcile these two facts. They are not in contradiction. God's plan and Judas' evil deed concurred perfectly. Judas did what he did because his heart was evil. God, who works all things according to the counsel of his own will, had foreordained that Jesus would be betrayed and that he would die for the sins of the world. These two facts concur perfectly. Even the worst act of treachery in the history of the world worked towards the fulfillment of the divine plan. We should all take heart in knowing that God's sovereign plans cannot be overthrown even by the most cunning schemes of those who hate him. I want us to put this face on Judas. I want us to put Job's words as he speaks to God In Job 42.2, when we remember Judas, Job said to God, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be women that always remember that no plan of yours can be thwarted despite the evil that's in the world, despite those clueless people around the world. Father, I pray for um, the world to know you. I pray that there would be, even as we stand here, there would be people whose hearts are understanding who you are. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for these men, uh, the ones that were faithful. And, Lord, for the faithless Judas, um, I thank you for the lessons that come even out of that. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies. I have a couple of announcements.